This is They Create Worlds, episode 36, Raiding IDOS. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will go into a company that needs no introduction. So what are we talking about, Alex? IDOS, Jeff. We're talking about IDOS. Why would we talk about them? They obviously don't need an introduction. Well, because IDOS did a little game called Tomb Raider, and you can basically sum up IDOS entirely through the lens of Tomb Raider because it's a company that got lucky by catching that game and rode that rocket straight up, and then when they had nothing much else to support it, they rode that rocket straight back down. So a meteoric rise and a disastrous fall. Something like that. Obviously, they still exist today after a manner of speaking as a subsidiary of Square Enix. They are Square Enix Europe now, but that IDOS brand name still shows up sometimes. Even before that, they had been bought out by another British company called SCI. So the IDOS that uh, Square bought wasn't even the real IDOS at that point anymore either. So it it kind of lingers along. The name does. Right. And some of the people. And certainly the franchises. Tomb Raider goes through periods of time where it wears out its welcome and then gets rebooted and comes back. Never, Never quite as big as the first time in terms of its impact, but always finds its way back to at least some level of respectability, and they have other franchises, Hitman and Deus Ex, that do okay for themselves as well. So they're they're still kind of there, but they're not a publisher anymore. <laughs> they're a subsidiary. So really, they're just around as a holding company for a bunch of intellectual property. Yeah, something like that, but at least it's still part of a larger video game organization, unlike, say... Atari, which basically just is a holding company for a bunch of brands that are not being used to any good effect. At least Tomb Raider and Deus Ex are getting games that people like, or at least Deus Ex was, until they decided they'd go off and do Marvel games. So now no more Deus Ex for you. Aww. Not that you've played any of the last couple of Deus Ex games, but if you had, you wouldn't be getting any more, because they're going to make Guardians of the Galaxy now instead. So, since we're not talking about all the stuff that came, after, we have IDOS, who starts off as a video game company. Well, not exactly. Wait, no? No, definitely not. IDOS starts out as a video compression company. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the video game industry. Now, this is old school video compression. Sure, this is routines to get video running at... Oh, say 25 frames per second or so on a 486 computer without any attendant special graphics hardware. Because, of course, this is a time when the whole multimedia thing is coming into focus and the whole CD thing is coming into focus. But you don't have the hardware that's capable of doing good, solid 30 frame per second, 60 frame per second video at 
any kind of decent speed. You have, we're talking 486 processors, early Pentiums, and no 3D acceleration hardware, no GPUs really used by most systems at this point. So it's really kind of important if you're going to have this multimedia future where everyone is watching these videos that you have a really good compression routine that allows you to kind of fudge some of those details and get some good video up on that screen. And that's why they obviously used real media, right? <laughs> You're trying to get us sued by real networks for libel, aren't you, Jeff? Probably. Well, defamation of character. It'd be slander because we're talking. But, yeah, no. So... <laughs> IDOS is actually <laughs> so IDOS is actually founded in 1990. It's founded by a group of guys, including one Simon Streeter, who was a former British Defense Ministry programmer, who came up with this really great compression algorithm uh, that they eventually called Optima. It wasn't called that from the beginning, but that's the name that they came up with, and it was a really good product at a company founded by a bunch of tech nerds that didn't know the first thing about marketing their product. Well, isn't that how that normally goes? <laughs> yeah, so IDOS, you know, not really doing all that hot in those first couple of years. I'm not sure it ever turned a profit in the early days. It was finally saved from complete and utter obscurity by an investor by the name of Charles Cornwall. Charles Cornwall was born in Zimbabwe back when it was Rhodesia, back when it was still uh, apartheid and dominated by a white minority. And his father was in the mining business down there, which is a big business. He was a head of exploration for a company called Anglo-American that was a very big mining company. Cornwall was raised in South Africa. And he starts getting into investing while he was in college. He and a fellow student of his, Brett Kebble, got involved in buying some shares of this and selling some shares of that and, you know, trying to become hotshot investors. Very similar, really, to what Bobby Kotick and his partner did in the days before he took over Activision. They decided there was this holding company uh, run by this guy called Neil Davies, who was a real hotshot investment type. Brett convinced Charles that they should try to get him to give them some stock tips because they like investing and making money. Charles Cornwall doesn't really want to just call him up and be like, hey, got some stock tips for me? And so instead, he was like, he called under the pretense of like asking for a job. And then one thing leads to another, and Neil Davis is like, okay, I'll give you a job. So he goes to work uh, for this guy at this holding company, and he starts learning about corporate finance and investing and all of this kind of stuff and stayed there for about four years. And then he went off and joined another corporate finance company, got involved in investing in mining eventually. They bought a stake in uh, a company called Rand Golden Exploration. So he's making all of this money and things like mining interests and all this other stuff. And he's an investor type, and he sees this video compression company, and presumably knowing about this whole multimedia thing that's become big in the papers recently. Oh, yeah, during that time. This is the early 90s, right? That's correct. During that time, that's when the multimedia craze was big. You had Encarta, which was 
a big thing where you have the CD with all these little videos and your home encyclopedia. Did you know you could fit a whole encyclopedia on a single disc and it can have pictures and movies and... Yeah, it sounds kind of lame now, but that really excited people 25 years ago. <laughs> well, it's the internet that you could download and put on a disc before the internet. Well, and that's true. And that's the thing about multimedia is everyone thought that multimedia was going to be the future because we're like marrying video and images and audio and, and text and all of this into this great thing. But really, multimedia doesn't work without the internet. The multimedia revolution was realized, but it not really until you had the internet to do it with, because just having discrete CD-ROMs, even CD-ROMs that could hold tons and tons of information, that just, that just wasn't the best scheme to organize multimedia data. It turns out the best way to do it is put up cat videos on YouTube. Which is much more productive for your schoolwork. Absolutely. So Cornwall hears about all of this and hears about multimedia and video compression, and he discovers, I don't know exactly how, I certainly haven't interviewed any of these people, but he discovers this company, IDOS, and he decides to buy into the company because they're a company that needs money. He realizes very quickly that these guys have no idea what they're doing from a marketing standpoint. They just, they have a product, it's a very good product, but it's not getting into the right hands at all. So Charles Cornwall realizes that a good platform for this kind of video compression technology would be the video game industry, because video game companies are always more ambitious than their current technology once allows them to be. They always want more of this and bigger of that and flashy graphics and sound and state of the art. So nobody needs advanced compression software more than the video game industry. That's very true. Every single game tries to push the envelope a little bit further, a little bit more, a little bit harder. Bigger, flashier graphics, more modeling. I really think video games are the thing that really take advantage of everything a computer can do. Exactly. One of the first, maybe the very first video game company that they do a licensing deal with is a British firm called Domark. It's a fairly decent-sized publisher in Britain, which means it's, it's really not more than a mid-range publisher because you didn't have any huge publishers in Britain at this time. But it was a respectable enough publisher, and they did this deal for the technology in 1994. And this deal went so well for IDOS and for Charles Cornwall that he decided that he really wanted to be in this business directly. Let's cut out the middleman. We have this good technology. Why license it to other people? Let's make ourselves into a video game company. And, of course, the way to do that is via acquisition. He's raised money for this company. They've got some cash on hand that they can use to buy up some companies. And so it just so happens, coincidentally, that Domark goes through a tough period right in this time, uh, not long after they did that licensing deal. So Domark becomes available. So they buy Domark, and that becomes the basis of kind of IDOS, the video game company. Then they buy a couple of other smaller developers, like Big Red Software is one. These are pretty small companies, but they, they have a publisher and they have a couple of development studios, and so that's how they get going. And then the other important thing that comes out of that Domark purchase is that they end up getting the input of one Ian Livingston. Sir Ian Livingston. 
though he wasn't a knight at that time. Ian Livingston was never really a game designer, a video game designer by trade, though he did design a couple of games for Domark. But he is one of the biggest names in the tabletop gaming scene in Britain because he is co-founder along with Steve Jackson, not to be confused with that other Steve Jackson, the American Steve Jackson. This is the British Steve Jackson. What are the chances that <laughs> Tabletop would have <laughs> two Steve Jacksons in two, different uh, in two different countries? And ones that are very successful for Tabletop gaming. Right, but Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston found a little company called The Games Workshop. Oh, they definitely didn't make anything uh, that would drive people to fanatical devotion. No, definitely not. And Livingston was not really involved so much with the Warhammer side of things. In the early days, they started out by distributing Dungeons and Dragons in the United Kingdom. They were founded in 1975, not long after Dungeons and Dragons had come into being, and they had been running a fanzine for you know these nascent role-playing games, and they ended up through circumstances, become a distributor for Dungeons and Dragons in the United Kingdom. And that became the basis that they started building this on. But he was really more involved with their big hit before Warhammer, which was the fighting fantasy series of game books. I'm not sure that that's something that was ever big in the United States. Uh, I don't think it was. I could be wrong. But they, they were huge in Europe. He had a lot of cred from that, and then he had done some game design for Domark in the early 90s and then ended up investing in Domark. So he was involved with Domark, and because of that, he ended up being on the IDOS board once IDOS bought Domark. And he remained associated with the company for a long time, all the way until 2013, after all of those buyouts we talked about previously. He actually was given the role of life president of IDOS which in some ways was a ceremonial role, but that was kind of a recognition of his contribution to the company, and his contribution was really product acquisition and looking at product, because all of these other people were investor types, and he was somebody that, even though he wasn't a video game designer by primary vocation, was still somebody who very much understood games and kind of understood that scene. And so he came to the company via Domark. So he pretty much knew what games he wanted to acquire and what would be good investments. Uh, at least in theory. So IDOS purchases Domark in early 1995, right at the very beginning of the year, and also gets involved then with another company called Glassworks that doesn't really pan out for them as well. That's getting involved in post-production kind of stuff with special effects. They try some video conferencing stuff as well at one point. But none of those other ventures really ever work out for them. But the video game thing ends up sticking, though it's not really because of Domark. It's really because of the next purchase they make, which is of a company called Centergold PLC. Centergold was one of the largest, perhaps the largest, distributor of video game, computer game software in the United Kingdom and was also a very, very major publisher of computer and video game software in the United Kingdom as well. It was founded by a fellow named Jeff Brown, who was essentially a failed musician. I mean, failed sounds a little harsh, but he had been in bands kind of in the late 60s and into the 70s and 
on a couple of occasions almost got to the point where they might have broken big, but never quite managed to break big. So he finally gave all of that up and then got involved in this computer gaming stuff and started importing stuff from the U.S., started with some Atari stuff. Very quickly, he decided, in addition to this distributorship that he started, uh, this Centersoft part of things, he would found a publishing label dedicated to bringing the best software from the U.S. over to the United Kingdom, because due to his distribution work, he was very aware of the software that was being created in the United States. And in his own words, he said it was just streets ahead of the United Kingdom. He wanted to get some of this software into the United Kingdom from some of these publishers that didn't have their own European publishing apparatus up, which most of them didn't at that time. Because, of course, it's a very different market because there is a Commodore 64 market in Britain, just like there is in the United States. But there's also the ZX Spectrum that's very big, and the ZX Spectrum is not in the United States. There was an attempt to introduce it, and it just didn't go well. So you have a platform that's different that the American companies aren't going to bother porting their software to because it's not in America. And then, of course, it's also a cassette-driven market. Even though floppy disks have proliferated and the U.S. market is very much a floppy disk market by this point, we've discussed this before in our British hardware episode, Europe was so cost-conscious because the standard of living was a little different that even after disk drives were common in the U.S., they were really too expensive to be a standard add-on on the computers in the U.K. So it was a cassette-driven market even on something like the C64 that had a disk drive. The American companies weren't going to convert their software, but it was such good software that Jeff Brown knew that he could make a mint on it. So he starts making deals with some of these companies. Access Software, I think, is the very first one he does, a company out of Utah that had a couple of kits in the early days. And Accolade is another one he gets in with. Microprose he gets in with. He gets in with a bunch of these companies to publish their product in the United Kingdom and in Europe. He calls the company U.S. Gold. U.S. Hmm. because it's coming from the U.S. and gold because this is like the gold standard in software. U.S. Gold. That does really well, and, and Centersoft does really well, and so he has this Centergold company that's the combination distributor and publisher. That goes well for a goodly while until the transition from the console cartridge product to the CD product in the mid-90s. And this was a difficult period for a lot of the British publishing industry because they couldn't get the market capitalization. The stock market was not very interested in these British software companies, and venture capital, as we think of it in the United States, didn't really exist in Britain at that time. So as games became more complex and more expensive to develop, a lot of these British companies couldn't really make the transition to this new market because they couldn't get the capitalization they needed. The investment, the money. The way everything's set up is just different. There's not the same kind of investment ecosystem that you have in the States. Exactly. At least not for video games. They aren't really able, they stick with the cartridge market after the PlayStation market is already getting going, and that just doesn't work out for them. I mean, the, the stock price collapses and they're just not doing very well. 
So that makes them a prime takeover target. And so in early 1996, IDOS buys Centergold. And that pretty much immediately makes them the biggest company in the United Kingdom. Ocean's kind of big too. I, I can't say for certain that they are the absolute biggest, but they're certainly one of the top two or three biggest publishers in Britain just by virtue of having... He already had a big ecosystem already set up, and the fact that he was weak enough to be taken over by IDOS, Center Gold had its tendrils everywhere, and so Lava Off the Head put the IDOS head on top, and you have control over everything. Exactly. One of the uh, U.S. Gold, Center Gold, owned some of its own development studios as well. One of the development studios that it owned was a little company called Core Design. Core Design was founded in 1988. It grew out of the Derby office, Derby being a town in Britain, of a Sheffield-based publisher called Gremlin Graphics that was a fairly successful publisher in the 80s. Some of the people that they employed were based in Derby rather than in Sheffield and didn't want to have to move to Sheffield and be part of the company there. So Ian Stewart, the head of Gremlin, said, okay, fine, you can stay in Derby and we'll make a satellite office for you. Fast forward a few years, and that's really not financially tenable anymore. Gremlin kind of needs to rein in costs a little bit, and they can't justify having a satellite studio in another town anymore. They're going to close the thing down, and the guys are going to have to move to Sheffield, or they're going to have to find jobs someplace else. And then the sales director of Gremlin, Jeremy Heath-Smith, says, well, why don't, uh, why don't we all found our own company, <laughs> essentially? So the Derby guys decide to stay together and create their own company, and Jeremy Heath-Smith leaves Gremlin to run it, and that's core design. Core Design has success with a game series called Rick Dangerous, which is kind of a platformer with some puzzle elements that is very much a riff on the Indiana Jones franchise. Rick Dangerous is a very Indiana Jones-like character. That does fairly well for them. And then Jeremy Heath Smith gets them on console very early from a UK perspective. He gets one of the very first Sega licenses by a British publisher, Sega Mega Drive licenses, Genesis for us Americans, but Mega Drive over there. That's in 1990, which is very early to be getting in the console scene in Britain, because there really wasn't a console scene in Britain in the 1980s. They do that. They do some Super Nintendo stuff, and they also get on the Sega CD very early as well, which doesn't do as well, but they have a decent-sized success uh, on the Sega CD in a game called Thunderhawk. They're doing all right. They're still kind of small potatoes on the whole, but they're, they're doing pretty well. And because they have been publishing in Britain on all of these platforms, and they're one of the first companies to get involved in new emerging console platforms as they're released, like the Super Nintendo and the Sega CD, they are one of the very early companies made privy to the Nintendo-Sony-PlayStation partnership, this new CD add-on to the Super Nintendo that Nintendo is doing with Sony, the PlayStation. So they get to start working on that 
before it's even announced and really out there. Right. I mean, they're not actually working on any product at this point, but they know it's coming. Okay. So they know that they need to transition to something more elaborate, something more 3D, because you've got this new hardware that's going to be coming around. So they're following along with that, and because they're privy to it so early, they also are privy very early after those two companies split to this whole Sony PlayStation thing that is coming now as a sole release, a brand new console from Sony itself. They know that this is going to be a 3D-centric platform, the Sony PlayStation. And so it's very clear that they have to do something bigger, (laughs) something better on this PlayStation that's going to be coming along. So there's a kind of company-wide brainstorming session. One of the really young programmers at the company, Toby Gard, who had joined the company when he was just 16 years old, he's a little older than that at this point, but uh, he's still not that old, says, well, I kind of had this idea involving exploring tombs in Egypt. And Jeremy Heath Smith was like, that sounds good. Go ahead and develop that. And, and that's very much the kind of president, CEO, that Jeremy Heath Smith was at the company. He was not really involved in the creative process. He was a businessman. He was running the company. He didn't exercise much oversight of creative. Basically, creative would come to him and be like, let's do this or let's do that. And he'd be like, yeah, great. He was making decisions. He wasn't just abdicating that role entirely, but he really let the designers kind of guide how that process went. And he was much more concerned with the business side and and making the money. He had a much more gentle hand of probably, we don't want to have cost overruns go crazy, so maybe limit certain things, or hey, we need to work a little bit more on getting this thing out. But as far as what to make, or maybe game design features, he didn't care. Whatever you want to do is fair game. As long as it sounded cool to him, you know. It's not like he was just going to prove anything. Toby Gard and a small team get to work on that concept of exploring Egyptian tombs. The protagonist is a kind of archaeologist guy with a whip and a fedora. And, oh dear, it's Indiana Jones. (laughs) Exactly. And so Jeremy Heath Smith sees that. And, I mean, the game seems interesting, but it's like he sees that and it's like, no. We will get sued into oblivion if we have this character come up with something else. So Toby Gard basically decides to go in the complete opposite direction. And rather than having this macho man, let's have this sophisticated woman as the main character instead. And there are a few different influences there. Uh, Tank Girl was kind of one of the big ones, Uh, the comic Tank Girl, which was very big at the time. There was kind of this undercurrent of a girl power movement going on. You had Tank Girl, you had the Spice Girls, which in some ways feel like the antithesis of girl power, but they were really considered part of the girl power movement. You had kind of the Riot Girl movement and punk music. There was this idea of women's empowerment that was kind of in the air at that time. And he kind of drew a lot of inspiration from 
that scene, and he created this new character named Laura Cruz that would be the protagonist. And once he had this Laura Cruz character, it allowed him to shape the game in somewhat more interesting ways as well, because when you have a kind of lithe, athletic female character, you can make it a little more gymnastics-like in the animations and whatnot. You can have kind of these handstands and somersaults and some of these moves rather than just like the big brute male, you know, barging around. Right. So it definitely helped create a very different aesthetic for the game that was probably a positive. Laura Cruz was just meant to be the absolute epitome of cool, unattainable sophistication. And that's an important thing to remember because Yes, the character Toby Gard designed had the short shorts. She had the tank top. She had the uh, huge tracts of land. Yeah. But kind of paradoxically, he didn't see her as necessarily a sex symbol. I mean, there's no doubting the character was made to be attractive. He doesn't deny that the character was meant to be attractive. It's kind of this James Bond type thing is really what they were going for, except James Bond as a woman. And James Bond, say you're Sean Connery James Bond, he kind of oozed this sex appeal, but he wasn't just whipping it out on camera every other scene. You know what I mean? I mean, he was doing it with the ladies sometimes, but it wasn't like he was just projecting his sexuality in such a, a vulgar way. It's not... It's, it's sophisticated. It's you know? a sophisticated sexiness. It's a suave, a machismo that is, you don't typically see that in your day-to-day interactions. It's something that's almost an idealism to strive for that is almost, to some extent, next to impossible to obtain, except for very unique individuals. Exactly. And so that's how he saw this character. He made her aristocratic, upper crust, very posh accent and very strong, independent, capable woman, but a woman that did also happen to be, yes, very attractive and very well endowed. So that's Laura Cruz, and that goes over really well, except for the name. The American branch of the company is just like, this name is not going to work. First of all, it can't be Laura. Now, that's Laura, L-A-U-R-A, kind of the traditional way of saying Laura, because as the Americans said to them, in America, you know, they don't say Laura. They say Laura. You know, kind of that American accent. It's Laura, not Laura. It couldn't be Laura. And the other thing they said was, is that the name Cruz, I don't know why, but the name Cruz just wasn't going to fly in the U.S. either. They, For marketing purposes, they just had to change it. I blame Tom Cruise. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is Cruise. This is Hispanic spelling of Cruise, you know, with a with a Z, not the Cruise like Tom Cruise. But yeah, <laughs> whatever. I don't I don't know what's up with that. But according to Toby Gard, it was the Americans that that made them change it. So Laura became Lara, L A R A, and Cruise became Croft. Lara Croft, Lara. Tomb Raider. That's right. Tomb Raider is released in 1996, and it's actually released on the Sega Saturn first. Even though it was learning about the PlayStation and all this that inspired the creation of the game, 
It's actually released on the Sega Saturn first. It has a month of exclusivity on the Saturn. Which makes sense, because the Saturn is a CD platform, right? Sure, so is the PlayStation. Right, but it's one of the ones that it was out there first. Well, no, they, they were out at the same time. The reason that they decided to do the Saturn version first is they felt that they owed Sega a little bit of a debt because Sega had taken a chance on them when they were just a small, nothing publisher when Core Design was. They felt that in return, okay, we've got this hot new game, we're releasing it on both systems, but we're going to make the Saturn the lead platform and give you this limited window of, of exclusivity in a sense as a way of saying, you stuck by us, so we're going to stick by you. And of course, by this time, they've been purchased. They had been purchased previously by U.S. Gold when they had run into some financial difficulty. And now they've been purchased by IDOS. So by the time Tomb Raider is released, Core Design is part of IDOS. They release it on the Saturn. It actually, paradoxically, ends up helping the PlayStation even more because the Saturn hasn't sold very much. So nobody's going out to buy a Saturn just to play Tomb Raider. But now all the PlayStation owners get this taste of Lara before she arrives on their system. And so it kind of, in a way, helps build up even more demand for the PlayStation release that, remember, is only coming a month later. This is not like the exclusivity, say, of Rise of the Tomb Raider recently, the most recent Tomb Raider game, where it was exclusive on the Xbox One for like practically a year before it appeared on the PS4. We're just talking about one month of exclusivity. Which really isn't that much, especially if you're trying to get, a, get the word out there, especially back in that day where you might go, wait, what? There's this game? I want to check it out? Wait, it's exclusive to the Saturn? Aww. Wait, that was a month ago? To the store! <laughs> when Tomb Raider hits the PlayStation, the popularity, it just explodes in popularity. You have a few things going on here. It's one of the first 3D games that really works in a full immersive 3D environment. It comes out in the U.S. just a month after Mario 64 does. In the United Kingdom, because the N64 didn't launch until 1997 in the UK and in Europe, in Europe it actually comes out before Super Mario 64. So this is really kind of the first freeform 3D platforming game that a lot of people have seen, and certainly it's, it's the first one of any note on the PlayStation. Then there's Lara. I mean, there had been occasional female protagonists in video games before. Certainly Samus is the most famous of the previous ones, and there had been a few others, but female protagonists were very rare. And generally not obviously female. Generally not obviously female. And it was pixel art. Laura Croft, in the first Tomb Raider, looks positively ridiculous to someone looking at those graphics 20 years later. But at the time, that was unbelievable. I mean, this was a woman and a shapely woman, if you got over all of the jaggies in the polygons. <laughs> it's hard to even quantify how 
huge a deal that was. This was a sexy lady, essentially. And that demographic of teenage and college-age boys and men, kind of that 16 to 24-year-old demographic that was fast becoming the core demographic of video game playing at that time with the launch of the PlayStation that moved the age a little older than the previous systems, she was just quite a fine set of polygons to stare at for a couple of dozen hours while solving puzzles and shooting endangered animals. I mean, she just blows up. Lara Croft becomes huge. She is the first real video game icon in the sense of being this cool sex symbol type of object, type of person. Maybe that's a Freudian slip, but <laughs> I mean, they're, they're objectifying a little bit here, believe me. You had Pac-Man before that was an internationally recognized character. You had Mario and you had Sonic. I mean, these were internationally recognized characters. Well, I remember back in the time of the original PlayStation run, it's sort of like with each console, you sort of associate a character with it. You said Mario for Nintendo, Sonic for Sega. Really, for the original PlayStation, even in, in most advertisement, even if the game wasn't a PlayStation game that featured Laura Croft, somehow she's involved. But it goes beyond that. That's other consoles had characters that were associated with the console. This is a character that completely grew a life of her own. She became the spokesman for Lucasade, an energy drink in the United Kingdom. She was featured in a U2 concert tour. Video and images of her were part of a U2 concert tour. And I mean, U2 is one of the biggest bands in the world at this point. She appears in magazines as a model. She models Gucci handbags or something like that. I mean, she becomes an icon. She becomes a celebrity. Uh, she doesn't exist, but she's a celebrity. There had never been a video game celebrity before. She's the first one to transition from video games into popular culture and really permeate it. Exactly. And... I'm not sure any other character has ever done so to the same extent as Laura had. I mean, there was a period of time where she was an international fashion and sex symbol, essentially. This really didn't sit well with her creator. Toby Gard, as we said, had created Laura to be this kind of cool, in-control, unobtainable type of sex symbol. Wanted her to look nice because he figured if you were going to stare at her in a game for this long... He might as well look nice, but it was a different kind of sexiness. It got to the point where she was modeling in bikinis or even less, and they were hiring real actresses to portray her at conventions and other kind of shows. She was kind of transitioning into that realm, and she was becoming more of, a, of an objectified sex symbol. Instead of being this unattainable, pure cool, she was this tits-out kind of, you know. The opposite kind of sexiness that we're going for here, instead of the machismo, suave, James Bondian sexiness, it turns more into... Let it all hang out, baby. So... Yeah, the much more typical 
on the ground sexiness. Right. So as that stuff was just beginning to happen, most of that craziness hadn't started yet. But as that was beginning to happen, Toby Gard was not pleased at all. He did not like his creation being treated this way. He leaves the company. In protest, I take it? Well, I'm not. Well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to be associated with the the games or with the company anymore if this is how they're going to treat his creation. It's it's stunning. The first Tomb Raider is the only one that is a Toby Guard creation. Even though he's the guy that's totally responsible for that first game being the game it is, the guy that fully conceived of the character and conceived of what type of game it should be and all of that kind of stuff, he leaves. Jeremy Heath Smith, who's always focused on making the money, when he when Toby Guard first comes to him says you're crazy. You're, you're making money on this game on like a royalty basis. He's, he's getting a cut of things. It's like, if you just stay here and keep your head down and do nothing for two years, you'll make more money than you've ever seen in your life. Just, just hang on. You don't have to do anything fancy. Just hang on to collect some of those residuals. And for Heath Smith, it was an unfathomable that he would leave all that money behind. But for Guard, it was it was about the creative side of it. It wasn't about making all of that money. And so Toby Gard walks away. He's almost never given any interviews since. There's very little information straight from Toby Gard on Tomb Raider and his inspirations for Tomb Raider and Lara Croft. He's just kind of vanishes. I mean, he he has another company and he makes some some games. He but he never has anything big like that again. I mean, that's just that's just kind of his one moment in the sun and then he's gone. <laughs> Wow. Tomb Raider is huge. It sells like between five and six million copies in the first year it's on the market. It's an absolute smash success. I think it's sold over seven million copies total over time. But, you know, in that first year, like five or six million copies, which there were very few games in those days that sold those numbers. I mean, a successful console game was certainly selling a million, two million, three million, but I mean, five million, six million worldwide. It's huge. And IDOS just takes off like a rocket because there is so much money coming in now because we of this have game. liftoff. That's right. IDOS basically just wants to keep that Tomb Raider money rolling in. And so they do something that in hindsight, is really quite unthinkable. They decide that they need a Tomb Raider game every year. That's probably not good. They seek to annualize the franchise. I'm not sure they made the decision to annualize right up front. They start, you know, there's a sequel, and then there's another sequel, and there's another sequel, but it ends up that they're putting out Tomb Raider games on an annual basis. And these are from scratch games, or are they using the same engine? Well, of course you have the same engine to start with. But you can't make many changes. You're talking about 10 months to create a sequel. Every 10 months you have another sequel, because it's not like today with Call of Duty, where two or three different studios rotate every few years. So even though a Call of Duty came, comes out every year, it's actually being worked on for two or three years by the team, because they have multiple teams on it. Core Design was charged with putting out a sequel, Tomb Raider 2, a year after the first game. They were Using the same people. Right. They were charged with putting out Tomb Raider 3 a year after that game. And we're talking about 
to market in a year. So you're talking about having maybe like 10 months to create a new game. If that. Yeah, 10 months. It's about 10 months. You have this complex 3D polygonal engine. These aren't sprite-based games. You could maybe get away with that with the old 2D games, but... 3D games with polygons are just a wee bit more complicated. Not to mention it's a new market. It poly, uh, Sprite graphics at this time have already been been there, done that. We have a lot of tools in place to do that. We can. It's a known quantity at that point. This is during the transition to 3D, and on top of the complexity of just designing anything in 3D, you have the problem of you don't have the support infrastructure, I would think, at that point of all the tools or all the tools, tricks of the trade. How do I handle this kind of 3D thing I want to do? In the PlayStation, I think we talked about this before, the reason that Laura is in a cave is because the PlayStation cannot render really far out. And so you have that fog wall pretty close in. That's why Silent Hill, you have the fog wall pretty close in, which they then use for that aesthetic. Absolutely. They get a sequel out, Tomb Raider 2, a year later. It just about kills them, probably quite literally, getting that sequel out. But they do. They can't make too many tweaks. They do make a few. They improve some animations. Obviously, it's new levels, new settings. They are able to add some vehicle mechanics to it, have her control some vehicles as well as being on foot. And they get it out. It just about kills them. And it, it sells well. It does really well. Tomb Raider 2 does. And then IDOS wants another one. In a year. The Tomb Raider people, these are the people who have done both the first two games. Obviously, Toby Gard has left. But most of the people involved are the same people that are involved in the first two games. They've had it. They can't do it anymore. They are burned out. Turning out two massive games like that in a two-year period is just like... <laughs> That's untenable for anyone. Yeah, I mean, that was the height of crunch. And I mean, they, they were basically crunching all year long. They were an enthusiastic bunch. I mean, they were stoked to be working on Tomb Raider. So they had the inspiration and they had the drive to do it. It's not like anyone was locking them in their offices and refusing to let them come out until they had a game. I mean, they were willing participants in their own <laughs> destruction. <laughs> but they couldn't do it again. There's no way they could do it again. So basically, the, most of the Tomb Raider team changes over after Tomb Raider 2. Tomb Raider 3 is done by an almost completely different set of people. But again, they have to have it done in that year period because these are big money makers, and IDOS wants money, money, money. And Jeremy Heath Smith is all about, let's make money while we can. Let's ride this while it's hot, because he's very much about making the money, the money, the money. Again, when people leave, whenever people get burned out and leave, he's like, no, you guys got to come back and do the next one. Just think about how much money you're going to make doing these games, because that's kind of his philosophy on all of this stuff. But <laughs> we're talking about pushing people way past human endurance. Yeah, it's, uh, you can do the crunch thing, but you do it for too long, and it just consumes your life. You need a work-life balance in order to functionally live. So Tomb Raider comes out in 1996. Tomb Raider 2 comes out in 1997. 
and actually does a little better than Tomb Raider 1 did. Tomb Raider 3 comes out in 1998, but it does a little worse. I mean, it still does very well. It still sells over 6 million copies. IDOS is still writing this Tomb Raider rocket, but it does just a little bit worse because the public is being kind of bombarded and overexposed. By this time, they've hired a guy to run their American branch named Keith Bosky, who is a master of licensing deals. And so they're getting the movie franchise going with Angelina Jolie. They're getting her in more venues. There's more commercials. There's more magazine spreads, more this, more that. Laura Croft is starting to get overexposed. And then the Tomb Raider 3 team is told, okay, now we need another one next year. Tomb Raider 4. And by this time, in, in the words of some of the members of that team themselves, they are starting to loathe Laura Croft. They're still kind of excited to be working on these games. They still kind of recognize that she is their meal ticket, but they've just been, they've been spending, you know, nine, ten hours a day, six, six and a half days a week, just I Laura, love you, lady, but I need a break. Laura, Laura, Laura. And it gets to the point where, like, the people that are crafting all of her death animations are the people that feel the most satisfaction because they're getting to take out their their feelings. I mean, there's there's really this feeling of, oh, my God, we are sick of Laura Croft. And these are mostly guys that only just joined with the, the third game because, you know, the people from the first two games are gone. So for the fourth game, they decide they are going to kill Laura Croft at the end of the game. It's going to end with her dying because even though deep down they realize that they'll never be able to actually keep her dead, there's a part of them that feels this kind of catharsis that we can kill her and she can be gone and we shall be free! Freedom! That's what they do. They kill Laura Croft. At first, they wanted to do it in a way that would be very final. They were thinking, let's decapitate her. But they realized that their boss, Jeremy Heath Smith, whom they still haven't told they're planning to do this, he fi they figured that he would decapitate all of them if they did something that they couldn't walk back. Because deep down, they, they knew they couldn't really kill her, no matter how much they wanted to. So in the end, they have her trapped in a tomb, which is very appropriate for Tomb Raider. She gets trapped in a tomb. She saves the world. She's trapped in a tomb. The rubble falls on her. Fade to black. No secret Easter egg scene where you see a hand poking through the rubble or anything like that. It's like she's dead, but she's dead in a cave-in. She's dead in a way that you don't see the body. You don't see the final results. Until we see a body, she's not really dead. But this is just a sign of how burned out these poor people are becoming and a sign that IDOS just didn't really fully understand. I, I mean, these weren't video game people that were at IDOS corporate. People like Charles Cornwall, who's the CEO of the company, in addition to all the investing he's done, he's the CEO. Ian Livingstone certainly is a bit more of a game person, but... He hasn't really been involved in in developing video games so much. He's he's done a little bit of it, but I mean he's more on the tabletop side of things. 
he doesn't necessarily understand how a video game development cycle works fully and how grueling and how crazy that can be. Jeremy Heath Smith has been involved in this industry for a long time. He started out with Activision in the early 1980s, even before he was at Gremlin. So he knows the industry, but he's just the type that, I mean, his philosophy really is, let's just run ourselves ragged for as long as we can and make as much money off of this as we can while we can. So he's like, come on, guys, we got to do it. Make the money, make the money, make the money. You know, he's not a development guy either, but they're really, they're burning through their talent and they're burning through their character. And they should have realized that. I think at least from a business standpoint, you could at least see that you can overexpose the market to your product. Yeah, well, look at Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto is a game that sells ridiculous numbers of millions. <laughs> you know, sells in the tens of millions each release now. It's a release of a Grand Theft Auto game is the event of whatever year it happens to come out in. But they don't release those every year. They don't release them every two years. They don't always release them every three years. Take Two takes their time and lets Rockstar work on each one of these games for a very long time with no pressure to get it out year after year after year or even every other year because they understand that they have the hottest property, I think it's fair to say, in all of video gaming, and they are not going to mess that up by rushing it or overexposing it. Or burning out your developers. Well, I think it's fair to say that the Housers have burned out a fair share of the people that worked on Grand Theft Auto. But the, the point is that they're not putting it out there in the public in this relentless way because they understand that maybe if they put one out every year or every couple of years in the short term, they could sell X many million more units and make X many million more dollars. But in the long term, it's going to kill the franchise. Remember, IDOS is a company that had barely gotten in to the video game business. They, they got in in 1995. Then in 1996, they have one of the biggest hits in the world. They have the biggest character in the world. This is a company that went from rags to riches very, very fast. And I just, I don't think they knew how to handle that. They didn't have an understand, enough of an understanding of how to manage a video game property because they were just so darn new at it that they didn't know what to do with it. And they burn it out. It's starting to diminish. Laura isn't quite as big a figure as she used to be. She still does well, but it's just she's starting to fade from the public consciousness. And then the console transition happens. Ah. PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2. That's right. So, of course, with the new PlayStation coming out, they're like, we got to have another one. We got to have another one. They don't want to miss a year. Now, they understand that it's going to take a while to make a PS2 game, but they still need something on the PS1 during that period of time. And so they release another game in 2000 on the PlayStation, Tomb Raider Chronicles. It's too much. Nobody cares at this point. There's a console transition about to happen. The PlayStation 2 is about to come out. People aren't buying PlayStation games as much because they're getting ready for that transition. There's always a little 
dip during a, a console transition, and there's just been too much Tomb Raider. It only sells like a million and a half copies. This is a series that you're selling 5 million, 6 million, 7 million. You're doing a fifth of your sales, and that's certainly not looking good from a I want money, money, money standpoint. They're just too samey at this point because they do make changes where they can in each iteration. But it's like we talked about with EA last time. You can do that in, say, sports games where EA was the first to really annualize a franchise because the basic ground rules of the sport are already established. So you already know that the gameplay is going to be within a particular mold. While there's always room for improvement, people will come back for the updated rosters and will be happy with whatever improvements you manage to throw in alongside it. That works. And that's because of what the subject matter is and the kind of fan devotion you have. Serializing an adventure exploration game doesn't really work so much. Yeah, you could have all these other different explore a tomb thing. And I imagine by this point, with the popularity of Laura Croft, the amount of clones and ripoffs and Me Too sort of games are prolific. And I imagine by the fourth, fifth game, people are going, well, unless Laura Croft has something really compelling to, I've had my fun. Let's see what someone else had to offer that might be a better, newer, interesting twist. Right. It's, it's just the same thing over and over again. And the deficiencies become more and more apparent because obviously games are improving, like you say, over the life of a console. Developers have a better sense of how to get the most out of a system late in the console cycle that they don't have in the early part of the console cycle. The Tomb Raider games aren't changing that much in between, and some of the ways that they're changing just aren't even that flattering because in the beginning, most of the enemies... I mean, the focus was on the exploration and the platforming, but there would be hazards for her to, you know, take out her dual pistols and and shoot things. The hazards were animals. AI routines for animals don't have to be as complex. But then as the series progressed and there were getting to be more and more human antagonists as well, they didn't really have time to improve the AI of anything. So the AI of these humans was pretty basic. So it's like, okay, this works fine for animals, but now we're asked to believe that humans are moving around in this very simplistic way, uh, behaving in this very simplistic way. And so that kind of becomes a deficiency. But you don't have time to improve that in any real way because AI is complicated and takes a lot of time to figure out, and we don't got time. We got 10 months. We need that game now. (laughs) Right. So it it becomes more and more deficient and more and more overexposed. And so you get to this point where Tomb Raider Chronicles just doesn't sell very well. It's just more of the same and people don't want the same. But of course, at the same time as this is going on, they're working on their first PS2 game because we've got the console transition going on. In 2003, because they had to, they had to slow down at this point because it was just impossible. The PS2 was such a complex system to develop for, very hard to program for, and it did not have good software libraries to help ease the programming process. They finally had to skip a couple of years, but they're still bound and determined to get it out as fast as they possibly can. So you have an overexposed Laura suddenly vanishing, 
which means that people are forgetting about Lara Croft even more because they were already getting kind of tired of her. And so since they were kind of tired of her when she went away, it wasn't kind of like, I can't wait till she comes back. It was kind of like, okay, well, it's been a good run. You know, nobody's really keeping Lara Croft in the consciousness at this point. And then when it finally comes out, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. The control system, which has always been the thing that has kind of defined Tomb Raider as a game series. Obviously, Laura and Laura as sex symbol has defined a lot of the appeal of Tomb Raider. But what keeps people coming back, you have to have a solid game underneath that. And it's always been a game that controlled really well and had really good animations. And the platforming just felt nice. Natural. Exactly. Well, the control system and the physics and the platforming are buggy as all get out. Because even having a couple of years to do this, that's still not enough time for this team to come to grips with the PlayStation 2, which is just such a challenging system. It's bad. The Angel of Darkness is just bad. It needed more time. This very nearly kills the Tomb Raider franchise. It's taken away from Core. Core design is no longer working on new Tomb Raider games after this one. And Jeremy Heath Smith, founder and still studio head of Core Design, is fired. Mm. IDOS is not happy. But IDOS kind of brought it on themselves. I mean, Heath Smith brought it on himself a little bit too, right? Because he was also very focused on making the money. And he was not dialed in necessarily to all that was going on in, in the game development side of things. Because, as we said, the game developers would basically go off and do their thing. And if it was something they needed approval on, they would go to Jeremy and, he'd be, and they'd be like, thinking of doing this. And he'd be like, great, go do that. And I imagine he didn't actually really be that buffer between the developers and upper management where he would be, hey, my guys are good. We can get you this game. We need more time and we need to do this thing properly. Look at how all these other things in this industry are doing their business. And this kind of release schedule is ultimately bad. He wasn't advocating anything like that. He was just pure money. Right. Let's make the money while we can. This is a good example of business having too much control. It really is. That's absolutely true. In the beginning, it's almost like business having a lack of control. It's kind of ironic in that sense, because in the beginning, Tomb Raider did so well, basically because someone like Toby Gard that had this very interesting vision was left alone to develop this vision. The business side of the company wasn't getting in the way of the creative decision-making process. That's how Tomb Raider got big in the first place. But then business got too focused on money, 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 money. This is the result. The Angel of Darkness is the result. And it destroys core. Tomb Raider is given to Crystal Dynamics, another studio that's owned by IDOS. They managed to turn it around. This is the first time the series was rebooted. It's been rebooted twice in its history. This reboot wasn't as drastic a reboot as the most recent one was in the sense where they really changed the character of Lara in the most recent reboot. They started with a younger, softer, less well-endowed 
Laura so that they could tell kind of an origin story of her growing into this more confident, savvy character. This reboot wasn't as extreme as that, but it was a reboot in terms of it's a new studio with a new engine and new ideas, and we're going to carry it forward in a different way. The interesting thing is what the team really felt they should probably do is essentially for their first PS2 game, remake the original Tomb Raider. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a shot-for-shot remake, but the idea is let's take it back to its core principles. Tomb Raider starts off very simply, and then mechanics and concepts are added, 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 added. So they were like, let's shrink it back down. Let's take it back to the basics of exploring these tombs. But Eidos was like, no, 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 this is our showcase for the new platform. It's got to have all of this great interaction. It's got to have all these characters and all this dialogue and all these systems. It's, they insisted on it being too complex for a first-time effort on a very difficult piece of hardware. And it falls apart. So that's what's going on with Tomb Raider. And that's not good for IDOS, because IDOS is the house the Tomb Raider built. And they've had very little success at building anything else. They take an approach that is somewhat interesting, but ultimately very harmful to the company. While they've bought a few studios, like Core Design here or like Crystal Dynamics, they decide that for the majority of their product, because now that they've got this big hit and they've got all this money, they have to feed the beast. They have to invest and grow and have more product coming in. What they'll do is they will invest in a series of developers that they evaluate and choose and think are worth investing in. And rather than buy them outright, they'll just give them a bunch of money to develop games for them. And then, of course, they'll gain the rights to those games. Those games will become the intellectual property of IDOS. But they won't buy them outright so that those companies are still controlled by their founders or by their executive team and feel like they have the independence to do what they want to do. So they, they think they're going to get the best of both worlds. They're going to get big new games and big new franchises that they own, but without kind of destroying the culture that made these developers interesting developers in the first place by forcing them into this corporate structure. Well, one of the main companies that they invest in is a little company called IonStorm. Uh, we talked about them. IonStorm is John Romero's company after leaving id Software, and it's the company where design is going to be law, where the artists are in charge, the developers are in charge, the creative people are in charge, and they are just going to make the biggest, most awesomest games ever without any outside interference because John Romero has made a lot of money at id Software and he is just going to fund this thing and he's going to build it out and it's going to be wonderful. And he's gotten together with a few other people as well. He's not the only founder. That's going to be Ion Storm. It just doesn't work. John Romero, for all of his design genius, didn't really know the first thing about running a business. He hired way more people than he needed. He wanted to have all sorts of awesome artists, all sorts of awesome musicians, awesome this, awesome that. But he hired too many of them. 
He wanted them to have all of the best perks and all of the best recreational stuff and top-of-the-line computers and everything so that they could feel really comfortable in that space and feel really creative in that space. So he overspent on equipment. He decides to rent the top floor of the tallest building in Dallas, which obviously is very prime real estate and is very expensive. Not just that, he renovates this top floor and spending a whole bunch more money just renovating it and turning it into a studio, which he then has to throw a whole bunch of black cloth onto in order to keep the sun away because apparently light and sun is terrible for CRT monitors. Right, and John Romero's a developer. He, he knew that or should have known that, but he wanted this grand space and it had a skylight. And so then he had to invest in all sorts of stuff to block the skylight so that his developers could see their monitors well enough to, to do their programming. So it's just a horribly run company, and he feuds with his other co-founders because he brought in a couple of other people that had their own games that they were doing, and he feuds with them. And the game that he's making that's supposed to be the greatest first-person shooter game ever, Die Katana, just doesn't come together because it's overly ambitious, and then they change engines partway through because the Quake engine gives way to the Quake 2 engine, and then he's got to be on the latest engine. So they go to that, and they have to throw everything out, basically, and start from scratch. And this game just doesn't go anywhere. Daikatana is finally released, and of course it's infamous as being this game that was hyped and hyped and hyped and hyped for years, and then when it comes out, it's just a dud. I mean, it's not the worst game ever. It's not E.T., but it's just when you've been promised the second coming of everything, <laughs> it just doesn't work. And the problem is, is that IDOS invested a lot of money in Ion Storm. How much money? They sign a six-game deal with Ion Storm for $22 million and end up, as time goes on, even having to invest more in, in the company than that as well. And they get no kind of return on it because Daikatana just doesn't do very well and some of the other games do even worse than that and some of the games don't even end up coming out. I mean, it's a disaster and a very poor investment. So Tomb Raider's falling apart. Ion Storm thing is falling apart. They've made some other investments. They've gotten some interesting properties. The Hitman franchise they got from a Danish developer called IO Interactive, and it's done okay, and it's still a well-regarded franchise today, especially the latest one has been a very well-regarded game. They do get Deus Ex eventually out of Ion Storm West, which was based out in Austin and was run by Warren Spector and stayed clear of all the politics and all the lavish spending that was going on at the main Ion Storm office in Dallas. And so they got Deus Ex, which did okay. They got Hitman from IO Interactive, which did okay. They had some of these franchises, but they just made some bad deals. This was one of them. Uh, they had a few others that didn't pan out. And so now this is a company that is starting to just hemorrhage money. It's quite frankly becoming a disaster. They rode this rocket up, but they were a one-trick pony. And when Tomb Raider stopped really earning for them, they didn't have anything to fall back on, nothing big enough to make up for that. So in 2000, 
Charles Cornwall basically decides he wants out. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this anymore. I mean, he's not a lifelong computer game guy. He was an investor. He made an investment. It looked like the investment was going well, and then suddenly it wasn't. So Charles Cornwell wants out, and this is right in the time when Infogram is right in the middle of their massive, massive acquisition spree to become Europe's largest publisher. We, of course, talk about that in the Atari brand episode. In 2000, Cornwall starts talks with Infogram to buy the company. For Infogram, this would be great because IDOS is got all of this intellectual property and is one of Europe's largest publishers and would really help them in their quest to become the biggest player in the whole business. From Charles Cornwall and Idos's perspective, it, it helps him get out of what's quickly turned into a losing proposition. So those talks go on for a while, and then they fall apart. Don't know why, but they can't come to a deal. And soon after that, Charles Cornwall resigns as CEO. He leaves the company. They bring in a guy named Mike McGarvey from the American office to run it. He came to the company through Domark. He had been running the American office of Domark, then had come to IDOS when Domark was purchased. And he didn't really want to move to Britain, but they convinced him all to only be for a year and all of this, just come over, straighten things out a little bit. So Mike McGarvey comes over and he becomes CEO of the company. Ends up staying well more than a year. He stays all the way till 2005. He's the guy that kind of has to try to turn around the company. They never really quite get it turned around. I mean, he does the things that anyone's going to do. They, they slash costs and they lay off people and they try to refocus on the product that is actually going to do well for them and build out their hit franchises. Uh, tries to develop other franchises like the Hitman franchise and just, and just Tomb Raider. They end up having a big hit one year with a computer game version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which was very briefly a humongously, insanely popular game show. It feels like they've probably almost turned a corner because they've got the Tomb Raider franchise kind of ready to go again at Crystal Dynamics after the disastrous ending in 2003 with Core Design, and they've got this Millionaire franchise that looks like it may actually be a, a second bona fide hit to compliment Tomb Raider, and they've got other things percolating under the surface as well. Then it turns out that Who Wants to Be a Millionaire really is just a flash in the pan. The second game doesn't do nearly as well as the first one did. It just bombs. So, I mean, they've been losing money all along, and now they were so close to profitability, and they miss it again, and they're just... They're not in good shape at all. They can't seem to quite get there again. They're in free fall. Well, I wouldn't say they're in free fall. I, I think that's a bit too harsh, but they're definitely not going anywhere. <laughs> so finally, in 2005, they end up being taken over by another small British publisher called SCI, uh, short for Sales Curve Interactive, which was the original name of the company, founded by a woman named Jane Cavanaugh. The share price is so depressed that... Uh, small or, or mid-range publisher like SCI can come in and actually buy this once titan of the British video game industry in IDOS. And so they do. There's a merger. They kind of keep the IDOS name as their main marketing name because that's the more recognized brand. But it's 
it's essentially SCI taking over. Other than Ian Livingston, who does stay on, the entire board is replaced. Mike McGarvey is let go. And it's the SCI board that becomes the board of the new company. So it's essentially SCI absorbing IDOS. But, I mean, they can't turn it around either because they're basically stuck with the same company that can't figure out how to regenerate itself. And SCI doesn't have any big properties that they can add to the list of things that IDOS has and is selling. So they never really managed to turn the company around either. It, it keeps not doing well. And then, like so many mid-tier publishers, the next console transition to the Xbox 360 and the PS3 when you're dealing with HD graphics for the first time and you need much larger team sizes and much larger budgets, the mid-tier developers like IDOS and like Midway and like THQ, some of the others at the time, just couldn't really compete in that environment anymore. And so you see IDOS just getting weaker and weaker, and finally it's purchased by Square Enix because the Japanese developers, as we've discussed before, are having a lot of problems in their own market. Their market is shrinking. They need to appeal to Western audiences more and more, but they're also having trouble adapting to HD game development because of their lack of good organization and their lack of good pipelines and their lack of good tools and middleware. Square Enix and Yoichi Wada, who's in charge of Square Enix, sees an opportunity to get a much bigger Western presence in a hurry and not just get some of these properties like Tomb Raider and Deus Ex and Hitman, but also get a Western development group that can help his development group in Japan come to grips with this new HD game development that everyone's having problems with. I mean, the the head of technology at, at Eidos actually becomes the head of technology for the entirety of Square Enix after this merger. I mean, that he's actually very interested. Uh, Watt had been a Western-looking guy for a long time. He was actually very interested in bringing some of that Western expertise into the Japanese side of the company as well. And so they buy IDOS, which is eventually renamed uh, Square Enix Europe. And so Square Enix buys them in 2009. So from 1990 to 2005, they were an independent company, though really only for that 10-year period from 1995 to 2005 were they a video game company. The early years were just in the uh, video compression. And then 2005 to 2009, they kind of tried to limp along under SCI in this new console generation, and that just doesn't work out, leading to the purchase by Square Enix and eventually the rebranding of the company to Square Enix Europe. And it really seems like Square Enix bought them not just for the intellectual property that they owned, but also for the personnel that they brought to the table, especially since one of the IDOS people become pretty influential within Square Enix. Well, several of them do. I mean, that was just one example. But yeah, absolutely. This is their way of trying to integrate some more Western ideas. And I can't, couldn't tell you if that's been successful or not. This is way too current events for her to have any inside story on. Certainly Square Enix has still struggled to get some of its big franchises out. Final Fantasy <laughs> being a, a good example of that. but. 
they are still a very vital and important part of the company. It's not just that there's a European sales office or something and the Japanese company shut down everything except sales and marketing. It's like, no, they, they still do tons of development in all of their Western studios. Tomb Raider is still developed and Deus Ex is still developed, or like I said, at least it was until they have decided to set that aside for this new Marvel deal. And Hitman is still developed. And so IDOS, Square Enix Europe, has become a very important part of the development framework of Square Enix as a whole. And so in that sense, still survives today in a way, even though obviously it's no longer an independent company. Is there anything else we want to touch on? I think that about covers it. All right. What shall we delve into next time? Well, this year is another 20th anniversary. We talked about how we're just slightly past the 20th anniversary of Tomb Raider at this point, which made it seem like this is a good time to talk about IDOS. And this year is also the 20th anniversary of something a little more tragic than that, which is the death of Gunpei Yokoi, the man who's considered the father of the Game Boy and was involved in so many of Nintendo's early successes. So I thought this would be a good time to kind of look back at Yokoi a little bit and look back at the early history of Nintendo and see how these things were intertwined and kind of set the record straight a little bit as well because Yokoi's name is brought up in a lot of contexts where it really shouldn't be because back in the early days of video game history, video game journalism, there were so few Japanese developers that their roles were really well known that names would get attached to projects where they didn't really have a lot of actual influence over the development. Gunpei Yokoi was one of the main engineers in charge of a lot of Nintendo's teams. Oftentimes, he was given credit for doing things that were really done by people beneath him, which is not in any way to diminish his contribution to Nintendo, which is just huge. But I think we can benefit by taking a slightly more nuanced look at Gunpei Yokoi and that period of Nintendo's history to paint a, a picture of, of what he really brought to the company and how he helped shape the Nintendo that we know today through his philosophies. Well, sounds good. I think this will be the first time we do a profile of a person himself instead of a company. Yeah, I, th I think you're right about that. All right. We will delve into Gunpei Yokoi next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.